1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Rituparna Padgiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Sayande. He grew up in Kolkata, West Bengal, and is currently working as a postdoctoral fellow at WIT Center for Diversity Studies, University of He He's also a faculty fellow at the Harriet Tubman Institute, York University, Canada. Some of his published books are History and Myth, Postcolonial Dimensions, Vernon Press 2020, Myths, Histories, and Decolonial Interventions, A Planetary Resistance, Routledge 2022, and Green Academia Towards Eco-Friendly Education Systems, Routledge 2022. His areas of research interest are postcolonial studies, decolonial studies, critical race studies, food, humanities, and critical diversity literacy. Today's conversation will be centered around discussing his very newly published book, Green Academia Towards Eco-Friendly Education Systems, which has been published by Routledge in 2022. Sain, I'm so glad to have you here and welcome to this interview.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much, Ritu Porna, for the warm welcome and for inviting me to this conversational space. Thank you so much.
0: Let me begin by asking you your main motivation behind writing the book, because when one reads it, it's quite an extraordinary read in terms of introducing newer kinds of pedagogical practices to what we know of as mainstream educational system. So what was your main motivation behind writing the book?
2: Yes, so uh, to start with the perspective of motivation, I would like to share widely two factors that motivated me to... Built up this project. Uh, The first one is very personal and the second one is uh, collective. So the personal aspect is it's actually something which is very related to my childhood experiences as a student where I always experienced, especially when I was a school student, I always uh, observed very closely that there is always a sort of tendency uh, of trying to teach in a sort of dictatorial manner. Now, what I mean by the dictatorial manner is the way we would read in the class. It's about a dictation and note-making technique where uh, we had little scope as students to think in our own terms, to express in our own terms, to ask questions to teachers. And often when we would ask questions, there would be a lot of teachers who would like to brush away our questions by just sort of you know kind of denouncing it as which is uh which is kind of making no sense which is stupid uh which is nonsensical and they would just uh, try to shut up and this process of shutting up i always felt and obviously with the passage of time is not just a kind of momentary phenomenon but also at the same time it is a very well-structured project of not or a well-structured process if i put it in that way of not allowing us to think in our own terms and not allowing us to realize uh, certain knowledge systems in our own ways but rather forcing us to fit within the existing ideas fit within existing thoughts and if we accept that blindly then we would be in their good pages and if we resisted that sort of force fitting us then we would be obviously in the categories of the rejected people so this is one of the personal experiences and the collective experience is uh, obviously, it was not just my experience. A lot of my classmates, a lot of my friends, they also underwent a similar sort of experience. And at a later stage, as I grew up, as I started understanding about the whole education system, how problematic, how dictatorial it is, not just in my own school, but also in other institutions in my my place from where I come from, in my country, and across the world. Uh, It sort of made me realize that this whole sort of dictatorship that goes inside the classroom where... It is only about commanding knowledges and not allowing individuals to think in their own way and realize the knowledge systems from their respective perspectives in their own way is a sort of a global capitalistic project which which has a long history and a majority of these problematic pedagogies of dictation has been derived from the European colonizers and it enabled me to understand this problem with a broader perspective. So, widely, these are the two reasons that provoked me to build up a research project and which eventually turned up into this particular book, which I thought about centering on why and how it is important to bring in the ecocentric knowledge values as a very habitual pattern of teaching and learning in daily life.
0: Right. And that's a very interesting response. And it also prompts me to ask you about some of the main methods that you have used as well as some of the sources that you may have referred to while writing this book.
2: Yes, absolutely. So I used quite a few research methods, uh, two very prominent research methods that featured in my uh, book, are first of all, it is personal conversations, a lot of personal conversations, and uh, as uh, as you must know that this book actually was conceptualized when I was teaching in Bhutan as a lecturer in one of their colleges, and I closely observed their ecocentric patterns of teaching and learning which obviously i will share and discuss eventually as we go ahead with the conversation so uh Personal conversation played a very important role in building up this research project. Uh, The second is obviously structured and semi-structured interviews with various community members. The interviews took place both offline and online based on the availability, based on the possibilities, because this book was written exactly at the time of COVID-19. So there were also a lot of restrictions in physical movements, as we all know. and another uh, very important aspect is personal experiences because when I was teaching there, I uh, participated and collaborated with the students in various forms of ecocentric activities, like which were actually a part of the curriculum on ecocentric uh, literature that. Uh, I I was uh, you know kind of teaching there, and it was also part of the whole research activities that we did at that point of time. So, for instance, you know, participating with the students in building greenhouses inside the campus, in building dugout composts, in uh, in participating in activities like engaging with community elders who lived in the adjacent villages where our college was based and trying to understand the knowledge values of the indigenous communities and how they are relevant to our contemporary ways of learning, uh, in what ways those indigenous knowledges contribute to our contemporary ways of learning, those ecocentric, specifically, ecocentric indigenous knowledges. And so these are some of the um, methods that I used in the process of my building up this whole project. And there were also a lot of online conversations because as you go through the book, you also see I just don't talk about Bhutan, but I also I talk about India, I talk about Kenya, I talk about New Zealand from various perspectives. I also make a brief references to the indigenous communities who are based in North America. So uh, there were also a lot of... Uh, online conversations uh, a lot of readings that caters to these community activities like research articles opeds and which actually you know went into my sources because my sources are a sort of combination of personal conversations and research articles books that has already been generated based on ecocentric education systems. I mean, obviously, this is not the first book that exists on ecocentric education systems. There, uh, there has already been a lot of scholarships that has that have already been produced on the basis of ecocentric education systems. So I refer to them as my readings, and always whenever I build up my, when I was like building up my sources and resources for this particular project i was consistently focusing on the fact that you know uh, on the one side i talk i engage with the various research of theoretical documents that are available on ecocentric education systems but at the same time i also look into uh, the various works that are available on exclusively on praxis and how various ecocentric education systems have been put into praxis, uh, what have been the outcome of those practices, what have been the challenges, what have been the opportunities and various other ways. So these are some of the ways, basically, I uh, built up my work based on methods and resources.
0: Right. So, what is Green Academia? Do you think it is a new conceptual framework or how do you use it in this book? See, uh, I would never say it's a new conceptual
2: framework, but I would always argue that the uniqueness of this whole concept is, it lies in the argument that the green academic systems or what I basically refer to as green academia widely or ecocentric academic systems should, should not just exist as a sort of theory, should not just exist as possible proposition. At the same time, we need to understand and be very clear about the various ways in which we can apply the ecocentric education systems and this has been one of the many reasons why i you know kind of wrote this book because a very fundamental question it's a very simple but i believe it still remains widely unanswered and it is a fundamental question that is great we have so many propositions policy making rules and regulations at the government level at the local level at the global level and several other levels about how to be environmentally conscious, how to be ecologically conscious. But the question is, how many of us are clear about the aspect of application that, okay, we have these policies, X, Y, Z policies, but how do we apply those policies? We have so many policies about nature conservation animal conservation forest conservation agricultural land conservation and etc but when it comes to the question of application you hardly find very specific very categorical documents existing that very clearly outlines that okay this is the policy this is the theoretical proposition and this is how you apply and which i thought is very much required and if one reads through this particular book, one see that green academia is proposed as a sort of methodology. Now, what kind of methodology do I propose? It is not just about institutionalizing this idea or to simplify further. It is not just about applying a knowledge or applying a paradigm just within the perspective of curriculum, just within the perspective of pedagogy, but adopting it as a way of our habitual existence, where we don't really have to tell people separately that we need to be careful, warm and loving towards our natural environment. It should be a part, it should be naturally be a part of our daily existence. And that is, and that obviously then the question arises, but how? And that is what this particular book, looks forward to address through multiple forms of very categorical and very contextual instances. Mostly they are found in the third chapter in the context of COVID-19, where I have talked of ample of examples from India, Bhutan, Kenya, New Zealand, and how they have been applied so far, in what context they have been applied so far, what challenges could come up from them, what are the possibilities that these, that the various ecocentric education systems in these spaces in these geographical spaces open up so from the, from these lenses i would these lenses i would like to argue that for me green academia is not a new concept but it is a very unique concept and for sure it engages with the question of methodology as a sort of method to be adopted as a part of our habitual existence irrespective of the context to which we belong.
0: Right. So you did speak about how this work was conceptualized during your stay in Bhutan. So how did your understanding of the green school mechanism which is being implemented in Bhutan influence your current work?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the the point is... um, When I went to Bhutan, so I started teaching in Bhutan in 2019, sometimes in the mid of 2019. And uh, obviously, prior to going to Bhutan to teach there, I was very much aware that they had a green school system, which always fascinated me. I read about the green school system. I have seen videos and photographs prior to going to Bhutan. But when I was in Bhutan what I could really do is to engage with the communities and closely observe that how does the green school system works, and which was a really a sort of eye-opener for me. Because prior to that, I have read so many aspects about ecocentric education systems, but this whole question of application, which I also talked about briefly a bit earlier, was very confusing for me and at many a times i was not sure that how to apply those theoretical and uh, theories and those policies account around ecocentric education system in my real life but green school system from that perspective uh, you know was an eye-opener for me where i closely saw and it is actually throughout in every educational institutions across Bhutan like whether it's a primary school secondary school high school colleges universities it's everywhere in Bhutan and not just that even if you look beyond the institution if you look at the people you know if you look at their very impressive ecological consciousness that they have irrespective of living in villages or cities irrespective of you know, earning high degrees and not earning high degrees, they have this ecological consciousness very naturally, normatively embedded within them, which is something so impressive. You go to a village area where people might not have been exposed to the so-called formal education, but still, if you look at their consciousness towards protecting being respectful towards nature, their su- their scientific approach towards nature, the way they interact with nature on a daily basis is very scientific, is very logical, is very impressive. And these instances, these experiences made me think that how it has been possible for a whole country to engage, to develop, to normatively Uh, practice this ecocentric approach in daily life. And if you look at the Bhutanese histories, myths, science, religion, or any other existential cultural spaces, you see it all stems out with respect to the valuability of the natural environment. And these are the aspects that triggered me, provoked me, motivated me to closely observe engage with the communities, and look around how it works. So if you just go to a very, like, if I just give you one very particular example, you know, the campus where we were located, just attached to the campus, there was a primary school. Uh, The place was known as Yonfula. It's somewhere in the Trashigang district. It's located in Eastern Bhutan, basically. We were based in Eastern Bhutan. And there was a primary school that was, uh, located that, that was attached to the our college campus. And it was so impressive to see that on the one side, uh, the students are learning right about science, about geography, about soil, about climate, about climate change, and so many aspects of nature. Simultaneously, they are getting a scope to apply those knowledges in a very, very practical space. For instance, the students and the teachers are coming together to let's say, build a fruit orchard in the campus, to build a vegetable garden in the campus, to tender domestic animals and learn about animal farming in their campus. And another two very interesting things. The second thing is, you know, every time it is not just the very uh, formally qualified teachers who deliver the lessons out there. It is also about how you know, community elders from the adjacent villages are invited to deliver courses to make the students, the children, get acquainted with the ecocentric values, the ecocentric knowledge values of the ancestors of the indigenous communities that exist around. And this very much enables them on the one side to... You know, to understand modern, the so called modern knowledge systems, which is widely derived from the Western educational parameters, but at the same time, not to do away with the ancestral knowledge systems, the local ancestral knowledge systems, and how they can just be very close and merge with each other in the contemporary scenarios. And this is actually very interesting because. Naturally, when they grow up, if you just go around the houses, again, especially in the villages, one interesting thing you can see out there is every house, no matter how big is the house, how small is the house, they will always keep a certain portion of land for themselves to grow some kind of vegetables. Maybe they will just, someone will grow spinaches, someone will grow cabbages, someone will grow cauliflowers or broccolis. And when the harvesting season is over, they will share these, you know, these harvests with each other. Now you see how naturally, how beautifully they learn about the values of humbleness, the values of caring and sharing without compromising with the modern knowledge systems. So this was a sort of Emerging point of my book, and then obviously my simultaneous engagements, as I already mentioned, with the ecocentric education systems in um, India, in uh, in in Kenya, in New Zealand. They all combined together, and I found a common plate where I can put all of them on the same plate and engage with each other. So that is how, in nutshell, uh, you know, Bhutan played a very crucial role towards the.
1: That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Right. So what do you think would be the need for a green academia? Also, do you think that this need has been accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean,
2: COVID-19 pandemic is one of the many pandemics that the world uh, has already encountered. And very sadly it it obviously makes me feel very sad and disturbed to say but somewhere somewhat as an individual i fear if it doesn't happen i will be very happy but somewhere somewhat as an individual i fear that in the near future if we are not aware if we are not building a collective planetary awareness against uh against violence of nature then we have to face encounter more such pandemics obviously there is a lot of controversies around this outbreak of the coronavirus was it a bio war was it well planned out was it an accident a scientific accident we are still not clear but at the end of the day one thing is very clear is out of the many reasons that led to the outbreak of this pandemic and then the the tremendous existential crisis that we encountered during the outbreak of the pandemic has to do a lot with our ignorance towards the preservation of the natural environment and our being, you know, uh, kind of... Putting ourselves into that space of reckless capitalism, indulging ourselves recklessly into capitalistic activities, into self-profit, act, self-profiting activities, without really understanding that how in that process we are disturbing the whole nature and the natural environment. The violence against nature has been existent for several generations now across different time space socio-political contexts we can talk about colonialism we can talk about capitalism and we can talk about many other things and many other factors but again this outbreak was a reconfiguration of this whole crisis was a reconfiguration of the various of the existence of the multiple forms of ecological crisis and I think it is a very important reminder, this outbreak of this pandemic is a very crucial reminder for all of us, that again it's high time that we as individuals be very careful about our approach, about our individual and collective approaches towards the natural environment. It is high time that now we stop treating the natural environment as a sort of free playground. We stop treating the natural environment as a sort of laboratory for scientific experiments. It is high time that we stop treating the natural environment as an object of profit-making. It's high time we realize these problems and challenges before further damages are done.
0: Since you raised this question, well, I think it would be also an appropriate moment to ask you if you know the anti-nature and capitalistic knowledge systems that currently exist uh, do you think their contribution to the evolution and growth of COVID 19 across the globe cannot really be ignored
2: absolutely
0: absolutely it can never be
2: ignored because any sort of outbreak any sort of epidemics or pandemics if you look just at the histories of epidemics and pandemics It evolves out of a set of destructions, a set of recklessness, and they're all widely connected to this whole concept of capitalism. And what is capitalism? Capitalism is one of those many episodes of colonization. If you look at the general history of colonization, we see that you know, it took place over various episodes and capitalism is one of those episodes where you very systematically and structurally, you destroy the nature, you destroy indigenous community values, you destroy, one destroys the, uh, you know, the environment, the natural environment in the name of development, in the name of progress, in the name of modernity. And we can already already see and understand with multiple instances of natural calamities across the world that how and to what extent it is causing you know it is leading to the destruction of the whole world and outbreak of diseases any sort of diseases i mean we are talking about just COVID 19 here but you know even if you look at various other diseases uh, which are no less than pandemics and epidemics and we see that capitalism is one of the many causes because it has Uh, sterilized our existence at multiple levels whether at the level of science at the level of emotion at the level of physicality at the level of our cultures traditions lifestyles you take any example and you see every aspect of our existence whether it's physical or psychological has been capitalized so capitalism has to do a lot. And then, you know, the the whole project of capitalism, how they try to hide their violence and abuses against communities and the natural environment in such a well-structured manner. You know, the existence of these vague concepts like green capitalism, the existence of these vague concepts like green industrialization, they are so problematic. I mean, capitalism is a violence, whether you, you talk about Green capitalism or green industrialization, they just don't work. But we are consistently, this whole rush towards materialistic values, this whole rush towards self-profiting is ruining us with each and every passing day. And capitalism has to do a lot with this whole perspective of destruction that has been taking place around us. And the COVID-19 outbreak for sure is one of them, and which I actually heavily... Criticize and very logically structuralize in the book if one goes through the second chapter mostly in the third chapter and also quite a lot in the fourth chapter as well
0: Right, so you also talk about pedagogical practices that are rooted in nature So what would be some of these and how do you think they differ from other more conventional pedagogical practices?
2: see uh, One of them is obviously, as I shared uh, in the context of the Green School of Bhutan, that Green School system of Bhutan, that uh, whatever we learn inside the classroom, whatever we learn about technology, we learn about the soil, the natural environment, about the climate, plants, animals, organisms, sky, water, and whatever we learn about the nature, it is important for us to realize that uh, in, the, in the practical spaces as well. And so it is important that every school, every educational institution, I mean, whether we are talking about schools or higher education institutions, it is very necessary to build up green spaces within their respective campuses. And those green spaces should not be constructed by a fancy architect being hired from outside, but should be built up by the students and the teachers. And this is what actually, the more and more we practically engage in this practical ways where we touch the soil, we sow the seeds, we see the plant growing, we tend the soil, we tend the flowers, we tend the animals, more and more we use our hands-on technique, indulge ourselves. Physically into these activities, more and more we realize the practical sides of the various theories that we learn in the classrooms with respect to various subjects. But this is just, I'm sharing an example of the institutional level, which is not sufficient enough. We also need to do that at the individual level as well. When we have children around us, it is important from their very childhood days to teach them about the valuability of nature, Unfortunately, today what we see is we are so much driven by a technological online social media life that we forget to the nature, to be in touch with the natural environment, to closely observe the functionings and the movements of nature. And nature has to teach us a lot in silences, you know, through close observations of the movements or the growth of plants, the movements of the birds or the insects or the animals, or the clouds or the shifting of the climate. A lot of things scientifically, a lot of aspects about the natural environment can be learned can be imbibed scientifically through close observations and that has to be done from very childhood days and it is the responsibility of every family even before they any individual goes to an institution like schools and colleges it is at home that we start learning the basics of existence and within that nature valuing nature valuing natural environment and learning with and from nature has to be normatively established and that is very important now normatively establishing it just doesn't mean just to learn about the flowers in the flower garden or to just look uh, you know to look at birds and insects flying around that has to be there but at the same time one's involvement one's personal physical involvement with the different elements of nature to understand the good sides, the challenging sides, the problematic sides, the possible sides of the natural environment is very, very important. And that is how indigenous communities have been historically learning and still historically learning for ages. And still, if you look at the functional and the existential ways of the indigenous communities around us in any any part of the world, we see that that is how they learn, that is how they preserve respect and carry forward their ancestral knowledges that is hands on technic learning and which is very very important even before we move into reading books and theories and philosophies and various other forms of theoretical intellectual engagements
0: right you also talk about something called political ecology so if you could talk a little bit about what it is and how it can be introduced as an intersectional framework within the existing educational institutions in india yes
2: absolutely so first to start with uh, let us try to understand the very basic level that what is political ecology uh, to talk about political ecology to simplify a vast concept it is how we engage with the notion the paradigm of politics the paradigm of the human civilization and any other living civilizations in this world and nature in an intersectional manner where now let me take a very simple example for instance you know in schools especially in high schools or at the level of the colleges and universities we learn about a lot of subjects, right? Uh, We talk about sociology, we talk about history, we talk about anthropology, we talk about development studies, we talk about political sciences and so many other things. Now, it is a responsibility as individuals, as institutions to engage, like whatever disciplines, knowledge disciplines we are engaging with as individuals, it is our responsibility to talk about, to engage with the valuability of the natural environment, the history of the natural environment, the cultures of the natural environment, and also to understand the various political elements of the natural environment. How does the natural environment function? How are the organisms existing, within? how the various organisms exist in coherence with each other within the natural environment? How do they interweave their existence on a daily basis, with respect to the parameters of caring and sharing. And these elements, these values, uh, need to be incorporated within our daily ways of knowledge production. Whether we are talking about politics, whether we are talking about social sciences, humanities, science, and technology, and whatever, and that is also something which I talk about in my fourth chapter, about political ecology and science and technology studies. That is, on the one side, we accept the fact that we need to engage and indulge ourselves with the various modern academic disciplines, but not at the cost of the natural environment, but in collaboration, in sync with the natural environment. That is is very, very important for all of us. So this is something which is a very basic perspective of political ecology and how Can we integrate the paradigm of political ecology in our habitual ways of knowledge production?
0: Right. So, last question. Do you think that adopting a Green Academy approach can also be a step towards decolonizing?
2: Absolutely, because one of the many problematic things that I'm critiquing in my book is capitalism and I'm strongly uh, engaging with the arguments about how we can indulge in anti-capitalistic ways of learning and knowledge production and through that I have cited multiple practical examples like for instance if I just talk about apart from the green school system I have talked about uh, the the kaupapa maori education system a very indigenous traditional education system of new zealand i have talked about the green belt movement that was 19 in 1977 it was started it was initiated by uh, environmental activist wangari mathai in kenya and now it has grown so big it is actually a part of an existence of individuals in Kenya and widely in Africa and beyond through ways of gaining knowledges, through ways of sharing knowledges. I have talked about the Sarang school, the barefoot colleges uh, in India. I have talked about the Puvidham, which is based in Tamil Nadu, I have talked about, you know, Purna Learning Centre, which is based in Bengaluru, I have talked about Anad Niketan, which is based in Maharashtra, and several several other radical institutions, alternative educational institutions in India on the one side, and also mainstream educational institutions like Pathobhavan School in Kolkata, Vishwa University in uh, you know in West Bengal, so and then there was the Sikh Mall project, the students' educational and cultural movement of Ladakh project in Ladakh. Another mainstream example could be Happiness Curriculum Project, which was introduced by the Ministry of Education and New Delhi in 2019. So we have ample of examples and. If you look at the roots of the emergence, somewhere, somewhat, whether it has emerged back in 1977 or back in 2020 or right now in 2022, one of the many reasons why these alternative educational systems have emerged and are still emerging is to fight collectively the whole capitalistic parameters of existence that are problematically and very fearfully getting normalized on a daily basis and this fight against capitalism this fight against reckless industrialization reckless capitalism is actually a part of decolonization is actually a part of decolonial resistance because decapitalization is equivalent to decolonization we are just we are fighting those colonial, Euro-North American-centric parameters of uh, knowledge production in a very structured and systematic way. And those Euro-North American-centric parameters exist today and one way of existence is capitalism. So this whole fight, this whole war, this collective structural war against capitalism is obviously a very strong... uh, tool a very strong agency of decolonization
0: right well thank you so much for this engaging conversation uh, around your book and on so many topics i would like to truly thank you for taking the time out to do this
2: thank you so much Ritu porna and thank you once again for inviting me into this space and for building up this very interesting conversation thank you